I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to James Tarala. James is a principal consultant with Enclave Security and is based out of Venice, Florida. James has been a speaker with the SANS Institute, the Institute of Applied Network Security, and the Center for Internet Security for over 20 years. He has spoken at RSA for numerous years and has enjoyed the chance to bring the experiences from working hands-on with organizations into RSA sessions. James has spent a large amount of time consulting with organizations to assist them with their security management, operational practices, and regulatory compliance issues, and he often performs independent security audits and assists internal audit groups in developing their internal audit programs. He has provided valuable resources for information security professionals through audit scripts, a child project of Enclave Security. James completed his undergraduate studies at Philadelphia Biblical University, his graduate work at the University of Maryland, and holds numerous professional certifications. In this episode, we discuss his sysadmin start, starting his own consulting firm, security frameworks, the CIS security controls, cybersecurity auditing and managing risk, the best use of checklists, teaching for SANS, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, James, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Oh, very good. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. And James, as, as we were just talking about before we hit record, I've been kind of a follower of what, you should be, what you've been doing for a number of years in the industry and the contributions you've made. But can you kind of step us through in the audience a little bit about your kind of start in information security and how you ended up uh, where you are? Sure. Um, so I've been in the information security space probably close to about 20 years or so now. Uh, I actually got uh, co-opted to start back in the early days. Um, back when I first started my career, uh, actually more in the technology side or the operations side, more a sysadmin. I uh, happened to be working in healthcare. And like everybody has seen, you know, back in the late 90s, uh, HIPAA was one of the first regulatory things to strike uh, for a lot of different organizations. So being in identity and access management sort of nominated me to be one of the first people in the organization, the healthcare channel I was working in to sort of dive a little deeper and see what this HIPAA thing was all about. And uh, one thing leads to another. And 20 years later, I'm still looking at a lot of those same issues. So uh, kind of just by accident more than anything else. Yeah, I think a lot of us that started in either you know, technology or security early on, it's you, you make the mistake of kind of raising your head out of the, uh, the cubicle at one time and volunteering for something and then 20 years later, you find you're still doing it. <laughs> exactly. One of those things where you stand still and everybody steps back and next thing you know, you're in the front, you're in the front of the line. line yeah. <laughs> and you you founded your own consulting firm, Enclave Security, correct? That's right. How did you decide to do kind of you know, hang your own shingle and, and start your own consulting practice as opposed to maybe going in-house somewhere, either as a consultant or just a you know full-time tech well, you know, I think sort of the same thing, like I mentioned with HIPAA, to be honest. Uh, I think my intention in the early days was never uh, to hang a shingle, never to sort of go off my own. In fact, I sort of told myself coming out of, out of college, listen, I, I like working for companies. I, I like being a part of a big organization. And that was always sort of my intention to start. Uh, and then again, life sort of changed its mind on me and kind of went a different direction. And, and basically, 
um, the organization I was working with uh, eliminated my position, but they said, listen, we really want you to stay on. We need you to stay on. We just can't let you be an employee anymore. And so they said, we'd be more than happy to make you a full-time consultant for a few years though. So next thing you know, uh, I sort of find myself in that situation. Uh, next thing you know, my time's freed up to pursue other engagements. And I think like a lot of people in that time period, uh, you sort of dabble in a few things. And I had the opportunity early on as well to uh, participate with the Sands Institute. So not only was I consulting, but I was spending some of my time teaching as well and um, getting a chance to meet a lot of neat organizations along the way, good people uh, that were really trying to do good things for the industry. So uh, that also sort of turned into spending more time with other organizations beyond the one I was primarily contracted to. And one thing leads to another. And uh, next thing you know, that's where all my time is spent these days. Gotcha. And a lot of the work that I follow that you've done has been around the kind of audit and assessment world. What drew you to kind of staying within that area as maybe going off to a different path, such as maybe pen testing or, you know, any of the other various disciplines that sure. fall under information security? You know, it's funny. I actually get asked that question a lot. And because especially in information security, if you have the technology background, it seems like if you're a certain age group, it seems like there's a certain sexiness to be in pen testing and incident response and you know, those kind of activities that people get drawn to. And uh, in, in early in my career, honestly, I spent a lot of time doing a lot of those things. But I think some of it's through attrition. Some of it was just sort of opportunity. But uh, in the early days, sort of getting my feet wet was always in the uh, my first opportunity out of, out of college was actually working. Uh, in the software development space, actually organizing the software development lifecycle for an organization, for a, for a vendor. Um, that sort of turned into where most of my time was spent in those early days, which is more the operational side, you know, working as a sysadmin, doing server administration, large-scale active directories, you know, those sort of things. But um, but as, as I started shifting, what I found myself doing more and more was the more I did incident handling cases, the more I served as a sysadmin, uh, the more you got the 2 a.m. phone calls, the more it required travel, the more time sort of, you know, drawing you away from family and those sort of things that are important. And so uh, what I always tell people is as exciting as pen testing can be and, and, and IR can be, uh, IR is definitely sort of a, a young person's game. Uh, and now that I feel like I'm really a little older, I'm not sure I've got quite the stamina to, to handle some of the late nights like I used to. Um, and at the same time, honestly, I've, once I moved into that assessment world, uh, I've yet to get that phone call at two in the morning that says, you know, James James, my auditing is broken you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night. So uh, it sort of made that transition um, originally just you know, for lifestyle reasons. But honestly, I have gotten in and really enjoyed it over the years. It's been a great opportunity to work with organizations. And probably one of my favorite things that I get to do is I get to work with audit teams. And as I give my reports and talk to people, most often my presentations go to C-level executives, go to boards of directors. So I get to actually spend time with people who may not have had these conversations before, more on the business side. And I feel like I have opportunities to actually make an impact in a business that, you know, maybe in a more technology-oriented role, I wouldn't have those same opportunities. So uh, really enjoyed being able to work with businesses to understand what does risk really look like and have some of those conversations. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting now. I, I know at least I, I try to hawk my wares in the security world, and as much as I you know I have a podcast with the word cyber in it, and we cyber cyber everything, but you know it's uh, it's really reality of it's really around business risk management. You know, and it's really <laughs> until you can really talk in those terms and understand it, uh, it's very hard to move the needle on improving security within an organization until you're able to talk that talk to the people that matter most. 
Yeah, it seems like it's a hard balance. It seems like a lot of people we talk to have either they're one side or the other. They're, they're either the sky is falling and the sky is always falling or everything's really okay and it's really not that big of a deal. And it's hard to find that balance and have people willing to have an honest conversation about, you know, where are other situations of the sky really is falling? Because sometimes it is, but honestly, most of the time it's not. And it's how do you have those balances and help people understand you know, what really that risk looks like today. It's, it's a tough one. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, we, we kind of talk about, and we'll, we'll come back to maybe the SANS part, but, you know, certainly is giving back to the community. Um, and that's certainly how I, you came upon my radar and, and certainly seen some of the things in the work that you did with like audit scripts and being able to kind of put out things that are out there that are extremely helpful to the community. What drove you to be that kind of a contributor where you can put something out there that really helps others as well, even if they might compete against you in a certain way? You know, cybersecurity is, is a big space, and I think there's certainly a lot of conversations about business, and, and people have to pay bills, and people have to you know put food on the table and those kind of things. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a very big pool, and there's a, plenty of room for everybody to participate in that pool. We've, we had the opportunity originally, I think we've, we've always had a bit of a mindset, sort of a bent towards the open source community and collaboration and like everybody, I and mean, we, we benefit from tools that other people have, have put out there and feel like we want to be able to give back to things that we've been able to work on. But I think what, what's driven a lot of us in the recent years has been actually more so than working with SANS Institute has been our work with the Center for Internet Security. We, uh, last 10 years or so, have been working on those um, Center for Net Security's critical security controls, which was sort of originally from the SANS Institute and some other groups. But that whole project was really just a, a volunteer effort by a lot of different people willing to spend time on things to give back to the community. And where a lot of our resources come from, sort of an out an outcropping of that work that we did with CIS, and it will continue to, I guess. And so the tools that we put out and some of the scripts and resources that we're trying to release to the community, we, we, we sort of originally got it from that work that we did, practice aids and all, that we started building during the, those volunteer efforts. But what we realized, too, was a lot of what we were doing, and probably like a lot of consultants do, is you realize over the years that you have this cache of work that you've put together. And you think, well, it, it can either sit on my file server where nobody can access it, and I don't even use it half the time, or you know, we can put it up on a website where people could actually download it and use it and maybe benefit from the process. So it's been neat to see people you know, come to us. And I had a guy last week from a, a large oil company say, hey, we've been using these tools for, you know, for years. I had no idea the connection of you know, who actually made these and just telling me how they actually changed the company. It, it was neat to hear those kind of stories. And that, that kind of drives us to keep releasing the tools. That's very good. Well, yeah, a lot of us out here definitely do appreciate it because, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort and time. So uh, that, that investment uh, is, is appreciated. <laughs> Well, great. That's good to hear. Yeah, and, and you know, you touched on the CIS and Center for Internet Security, and that now what, what I've always tried to figure out from the timeline: did that exist before there was a SANS Top Twenty, or was that in kind of a birth from that? You know, so it's, it's so from a naming standpoint, uh, it's horribly confusing. <laughs> so, in the very very early days, there was another project called the SANS Top Twenty. And the SANS Top 20 was actually a list of, of um, 20 threats. It was 10 Windows threats and it was 10 Unix threats. And uh, it was updated every year or two. But basically what it was, it was, it was technology threats that could harm these systems. And that was released, I mean, it's probably as early as the, boy, maybe late 90s, or early 2000s. And so that was one project. And that project, it's pretty well faded away. I haven't seen any publications on it for at least 10 years or more. But... 
shortly after that project sort of faded away, another project came up called, and I, boy, I have to remember the original name we gave it, something around like the 20 most critical cyber defense threats or something like that. Sort of a really long Mouthful. title I can never remember. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And so we managed that for a long time, and it seems like year after year, the name, the title has changed. Oh, and actually, uh, I'm sorry, the very first title was the Consensus Audit Guidelines. So that was even before the 20. Wow. And, and so the Consensus Audit Guidelines started, that morphed into um, the 20 most critical you know, threat, whatever that title was. And then that sort of morphed into the critical security controls. And then when it was eventually donated to the Center for Internet Security from SANS, then it was sort of renamed the Center for Internet Security's Critical Security Controls. And I think they've even rebranded it again, maybe to the Center for Internet Security or CIS Controls. But I'm a little fuzzy on that one today. Gotcha. And, you know, about that kind of now, would you would you actually describe it as a framework? What where would you place the the CIS controls? Because um, I, I think I've and others have used it, you know, certainly to crosswalk to like NIST CSF other frameworks, does it fall within that realm of being a framework or where would you kind of put it in the, the world? Well, I, I'm a stickler for scope and I'm a stickler for definitions. And, and maybe that's why I was drawing me to working on a, on a, a project like this. Uh, but, you know, technically, if you really, you know, if you really force me to make an answer on that, I would say um, the CIS controls are not a framework. But to be completely fair, I don't see very many documents as frameworks. And, and this just might be me, but when, when I hear the word framework, I, I, this idea of completeness or architecture or blueprint sort of, you know, sort of gets in, in my mind. And when I see that, I think that I, I want to see a framework be fully featured or fully scoped. And, and I don't know that the CIS controls were ever designed to be a full architecture for cybersecurity. And I know we sort of use that framework, the word framework loosely, but I, I, I say this just because I think if I look at some of the different standards and regulations and frameworks and things that are out there right now, to me, there's there's a couple different sort of column standards or documents, let's say, that are that are out there. On, on the one hand, there are folks that have tried to deal with a very specific scope in cybersecurity, and, and to me, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, if I were to really build an umbrella over, let's say, the different aspects or scopes that should be addressed in a real cybersecurity architecture or framework, you know, what would that look like? And the best that I can come up with is I've got four pillars that I would generally refer to. Uh, one would be governance, or governance, or maybe even operational controls. You know, how do we actually maintain the program that's cybersecurity? Because at the end of the day, we're just another program, like, like anything else. So that governance model, I think, would be one thing. If you look at something like COBIT, for example, uh, that would be a great example of something that's really governance or operationally focused. But at the same time, COBIT's not going to try to be, let's say, a deep technical guide. That's that's not their intention. Mm -hmm. But but they fit really well in that governance space. On the other hand, that, so that, that being said, I wouldn't call COBIT a framework. But I would say it's a good standard to cover governance controls. I'd also probably look at physical security. Uh, although saying physical security, I think that's one of those areas where we honestly, we don't have any standards, period. We, we make things up and, you know, disestig sort of touch on how high fences should be and that kind of thing. But honestly, I think in cyber, we're still really missing what physical security or what a good standard for physical might look like. Um, and then at that point, I think there's probably two other technical guides, one which is probably more infrastructure-oriented, things like the Center for Internet Security's controls would be. So things like how do you secure a server or a workstation or a router, you know, those kind of things. And then you probably have another set of controls which would be more software-oriented. 
you know, leads me to sort of like the MITRE guides for the 25 most critical programming errors mm -hmm. or some of the OWASP guides, that sort of thing. But then you look at something like, let's say, ISO, the 27,000 series or 27,002, or you look at the cybersecurity framework or some of these. To me, the, the best I can describe is those are sort of like picking off the cybersecurity buffet because they basically are going through and saying, you know, we're going to take a little governance. We're going to pick a little, oh, I don't know, a little bit of physical, a little bit of technical infrastructure. And they sort of hit a cross section. But again, I don't know that they're complete. I just think that they've chosen a little bit from every category. And the only one that I really would feel comfortable saying is a framework, and, and of course it's sort of the opposite side of the spectrum, would be NIST 853. But to be fair, that thing is huge, yeah. and nobody does all that, right? But but short of that, you know, I, I have a hard, and again maybe just me being a stickler for naming, but I really have a hard time calling any of them short of 853 a framework. But I would say our scope is how do we do technical infrastructure or operational security well? You know, again, routers, switches. Um, servers, workstations, or those sort of things. That really is our niche. So, so I wouldn't call us a framework, but I, I sort of would put us at the same level of, let's say, the CSF and some of those documents. And frankly, if you read the CSF and you line it up with the critical controls, their control number one is our control number one, and their control number two is our control number two. And funny where they got that from, right? I mean, this is a collaborative effort, and they certainly saw what we were doing and uh, made and did that purposely. And that that was part of their design was to take things from our document and ISO and others and build them into you know what they eventually released. So, well, yeah, I, I would put it at that level. Yeah, and what what I think I like about CIS and, and NIST CSF is that. There's a little bit more of a, and I'm guessing, and this is what I want to know, is if there's more of a design to make it more accessible and the ability to implement it's a little bit more where it's something like ISO or NIST 800 is just, they're, they're big and they're unwieldy and there's a lot that goes into them. Where this is something I feel like with CIS, you can, you can quickly get some things going within your program. It gives you some really great guidelines. And some real practical fundamental things like, you know, control number one of getting basically getting control of your assets, because if you don't have a control over that, everything else is going to kind of fail. Um, so it was the intentional design to really kind of make this more of an approachable way to get people moving in the right direction? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's exactly what it was. I mean, the the original history, and I think a lot of people probably forget this part of it, but in the original days before, you know, Alan Poller and Tony Sager and all those guys sort of got together and, you know, brought this group of people together to start working on the document, uh, there was already a draft created. Um, you know, NSA and Air Force had worked together. And, and really, the, the reason the original draft and sort of back of the napkin version of the controls was created was specifically to give for the NSA to give Air Force guidance and say, listen, if you do these things, this is how you'll stop our red teams from being successful to break into your networks. I mean, that was where the original version came from. So it was, it was always designed from the very beginning to be highly practical, highly technical. And I mean, the original sort of the philosophy that we've always, always talked about since the beginning has been the controls that we define have got to be able to map to known attacks. They can't just be some random control or some random good technical thing to do. It's got to specifically map back to an actual attack that we see in the field that's being exploited today. And the reason the priorities are what they are is because we felt like these things could actually stop attacks more likely than others. And so we designed them to be prioritized. So you would do number one first, and then you do number two, and you sort of work your way through that document. And the idea being that you would stop more attacks if you started at the top and worked through. And honestly, you know, we, we see a lot of these frameworks and these standards, and, and they're good. I mean, there's a lot of good people working on these. But 
when I hear people talk about, well, how do we interpret this? Or what does that mean? Or there's ambiguity. And you know, we have people have to translate it. To me, that's crazy. This should be simple. It should be easy to understand. I'm not saying it'd be easy to do, but we should at least know what we're supposed to do, even if it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed, too, that's a little bit of a differentiator around the CIS controls is there is some metrics built into it for, you know, for example, detection of unauthorized devices on your network, whether it be a couple minutes, an hour, three days. You know, there, there's some kind of measuring stick, which seems uh, nice about it, that I don't see in some of the other maybe guidelines. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's always been a big priority for us. In fact, we've, we've tried to get really specific on this. And uh, we have worked with NIST somewhat on this to try to make sure we're using the same terms and at least using the same lingo. We we debate some words like the word, what the word control means. Mm-hmm. Like if you ask Tony Sager and Dr. Ross, you know, kind of what does control mean? You're going to get two different answers. But I think on measures and metrics, I think we're pretty consistent. And, and the whole idea of what we're trying to do is we we've been trying to say, here's the thing we believe is right. Do this good thing. And then to see if you're doing it right, here's a way you can measure yourself. Now, the measurement itself is not a judgment. It's just a measure yourself, let's quantify what you're doing. And then we try to have a third thing, which is a metric, or we sort of call it thresholds in some of the documentation. But the idea being that within a metric, we now put a judgment on. We say, this is what we believe is right. And so our original thought was to say, we sort of go back to quality assurance and such and be able to say, okay, Let's be able to figure out, first of all, what that measurement looks like. Like Make something simple. Like, let's say um, we say you should have host-based firewalls enabled on all your nodes, which which we do. So we say a statement like that, and then we say, okay, now count how many machines don't have a host-based firewall enabled. And then that's a measure now. Now, if you have you know 10 or you have 100, let's say, devices that don't have it enabled, that's really not a metric. It's just a measure. It's just something that we've quantified. But then what we want to do is we want to take it one step further and actually give people a metric so they can say, now I want to pass a judgment on that. You know, James might be six foot one, and that's a height, and that's a quantifiable measure of, you know, how you know how many inches tall he is. But it's not a judgment of tall or short, it's just a measure. You know, and some people might judge that as tall, some people might not. And that's a but that's the metric side of it. And what we're what we're trying to get into is we have a new release of the controls that we're hoping will be ready by January. I think, and I think we'll be pretty close to that. And one of the things we actually are focusing on is simplifying all the control statements themselves to make sure that there's a one-to-one mapping between every time we ask you to do something good, how do you measure that? And if we can't figure out a way to measure that, then we're reconsidering the control itself. And not only do we want it to be quantifiable, we also want to make sure that it's something you can automate because in the long run, we want to be able to automate these good things. So we're, we're trying to do more of those one-to-one mappings. And we're not sure exactly how. We, we have some ideas how we're going to do the metric side of it. But we're leaning towards some sort of quality measure program. And if you think about it in terms of something like like food manufacturing, for example, we know that if you buy a hot dog, you know, as gross as the analogy is, uh, you're going to have a certain amount of, you know, rat hair and cockroach bits in your hot dog. And the FDA has basically said, listen, we're, we allow that. We allow a certain percentage of a hot dog to be rat hair and cockroach bits. And it's not a bad thing. Ideally, we'd shoot for 100% hot dog and no, you know, bugs in our food. But the reality is we all know that there's a certain amount of allowable um, extra stuff that goes in there. 
And so that's the kind of thing that we're trying to look at here is some sort of quality measure program, whether it be Six Sigma or something along those lines, but something to that effect that would help organizations to say, okay, we're going to help you understand what quality level you are based on the measures that you're able to come up with. So if you do tell us that, you know, 2% of your organization doesn't have a host-based firewall enabled, we want to be able to tell you, is that good? Is that bad? You know, where does that put you in terms of, you know, what the world at large is doing in that space? So we're trying to be very, very specific about that. And, and with that, would you allow, or would, would the framework allow for some area of compensating control? So, you know, no, I don't have it on 2% of the host because, and then here's what we've done instead. Well, I think, so we're not trying to be compliance. And so for us, I mean, and I, I'm not sure this is what you're saying, but mm -hmm. so I just want to be specific though, is that, so for us, we never expect to allow or disallow anything. All we want to do is be a mirror to risk. So we want someone to be able to look at themselves in light of this standard or this guide that we're, we're publishing and be able to understand where their risk lies. And so what I would generally do, and we've, we've worked with a lot of organizations on the automation piece of this. And what, what we generally encourage is, two sets of dashboards. One, which is, this is exactly the risk that you're accepting right now. This is how many nodes you have today that, again, for example, don't have the host-based firewall enabled or you know whatever the control happens to be. We want to be very specific about you know, no compensating controls, pure risk, this is what you're facing. But we also want to have others that can be more, more used for management decision-making. So if I have a situation where maybe one of my vendors has said, listen, you can't have a host-based firewall on, not an option for you. Well, I want the organization to be able to apply for exceptions for that, document that, and make good decisions around it, and maybe put compensating controls, maybe not. But at the end of the day, be able to understand, okay, is a risk I'm accepting because of a management issue? In other words, I've got a business unit that's just ignoring the rules, or is it because we're, we've made a decision consciously to accept this risk, and we're okay with that, and we're going to allow that to take place? So we want, I generally encourage people to look at it from both sides, look at it purely from a risk standpoint, what are the risks that I'm facing? And on the other hand, be able to understand where they've made good decisions. Because my fear is sometimes these turn into paperwork exercises. And the result is we go to leadership and we say, listen, you know, we, this is our risk. And you know, it's from an accepted standpoint. And there was a, an article in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago about PCI. And the case study that they tried to put together was here's an organization that basically said, listen, we're PCI compliant and, you know, we've got these exceptions. We've approved these exceptions. We have compensating controls. We're all good boss. And next thing you know, there's a breach. And the senior leadership says, well, what's going on, right? You guys told me everything was good. Why are we having a breach now? And I fear sometimes that security teams hide that risk from senior leadership for whatever reason, to look better, or, you know, they don't want their boss to, you know, see that or whatever it happens to be. And we're really just a big proponent of being able to show that risk to leadership and stop accepting it. We want business to engage that and help them understand it's not always comfortable, but it's there and, and they need to acknowledge that or, you know, find ways to get rid of that risk somehow. Yeah, and definitely I, I was going to kind of pick on PCI for that a little bit because I've known people in that space that, that either have worked for me or come from there where they've they've expressed a lot of frustration where they said, you know, geez, you know, we, we make sure these organizations they've worked with are PCI compliant and that they just go down the checklist and they, they do the right steps and remediation. But they said, but there's this big glaring hole that's not part of the framework that's completely ignored. Um, it doesn't allow for that flexibility to really input other views or opinions to try to make things more of a mission-based uh, goal of improving security. It's more enough. We just got to focus on the compliance. Yeah. 
And you know, it's interesting too because we've we've been having these conversations more and more internally, like as we're going through this review cycle for the controls. That you know, I've I've heard this mindset sometimes too that that the checklists are bad. And I guess I would I, one of the things that we've been trying to communicate a lot to people is that we're actually huge fans of checklists, which may sound crazy because you always hear that, right? It's not a checklist mentality or, you know, checklist-based risk, risk approach or whatever. But, you know, honestly, I, we look at the world and we look at some of the non-IT related disciplines, you know, whether it be, you know, a, a brain surgeon or an astronaut or an engineer. And we were working with some folks over at Boeing, actually, who were involved in some of the, the shuttle launches and SpaceX launches. And, you know, we, we were talking to them about how they were using checklists to help you know, basically put satellites into orbit. And we kept thinking more and more, why do we keep saying bad things about checklists? Checklists are wonderful, right? They send things into orbit and they, you know, allow us to create, you know, do complicated surgeries and all these kind of things. So we love checklists, but we just want to make sure the checklists are right and that we agree with what that is. And that's kind of where this, where the documents come from. It's meant to be this community driven, lack of a better word, checklist or risk assessment guide to help people understand these are the things that we think can make an impact if we do them and you know, give that to the community and see what they think. Yeah, definitely. You know, checklists can be extremely, we've used a lot of even in the forensic and IR space. It removes some of that cog- yeah. cognitive load because you can really then focus on what's important. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's the right exactly. application of it. Exactly. And one of the things too, you kind of touched on a little bit too, is about, you know, the, the risk acceptance of it. And I think where I've seen some organizations fail is that, you know, IT does do that. They'll, they'll hide the ball a little bit and say, well, we're not going to raise this because it's, it's just, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out on our own as opposed to pushing it up the ladder and making management make that decision about here's where the risks lie. Uh, what do you want to do about it? Here are the pluses and minuses of different paths we can take, but making the business make the decision about what risk course they're going to take. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. There's a there was a study a couple of years ago, and I I don't know how accurate this was, so to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but there's a, a blog post or a, a blog site, uh, Life Hacker, which has you know little tips and tricks and things and studies that they find technology oriented and such. And they did a study a couple of years ago about the uh, the stress levels in different kinds of jobs, and they had you know basically the most stressful jobs all the way down to the least stressful jobs. And at the high end of the spectrum, it's what you expected, right? Policemen, you know, firefighters, you know, people who basically put their lives in the line as part of their, their job roles every day. And the thing that I thought was interesting about it, though, was, you know, where cybersecurity um, system administrators or cybersecurity professionals fit on that list because they ended up showing up. But it wasn't near the top. And, you know, all the cybersecurity people I talk to, you know, think their job is really, really stressful. I and mean, of course, you know, compared to a firefighter or something, you know, we're nowhere near that end of the spectrum. But every time I, you know, sort of quiz people, you know, where do you think we fit? They put us sort of in the middle to the higher end of that tier. But the interesting thing was Lifehacker actually in their survey found that not only were we not in the middle or top tiers, we were in the lower tier. And not only were we in the lower tier of stressful jobs, where we fit on the scale was just below librarian. <laughs> and and what made me – and we, we, we laugh, right, when we see that because it says, well, wait a minute. How can a librarian's job be more stressful than our job? Like what would possibly cause stress in a librarian's job? And, and my guess is probably the survey wasn't wide enough or something like <laughs> yeah. that. But, but that being said, though, I think that's exactly the mindset that we should have because at the end of the day, the risk isn't really our responsibility. We're almost like internal consultants. We're here to advise the business, help the business absolutely as much as we can. But at the end of the day, it's a business who's accepting this risk, not us. 
So I, I really try to help people understand that mindset. In fact, if I could only give one public service announcement to the people that I talk to, that's always the one that I want to get across is at the end of the day, the risk isn't ours. We're here to present the risk, help people to understand what options they have, do our best we possibly can to help them address that. But unless we're talking about something like custodial neglect, it's not really our responsibility at the end of the day. So if I could you know, how to help administrators to get over that fear of sharing, uh, I think that'd be amazing. Yeah, I, I recently, um, a couple months ago, had, a, had an administrator just ask us to start to redacting certain things that came off of vulnerability assessments in a risk report. And I said, no, you, <laughs> because he was worried he was going to get in trouble. And I said, you know, right. that's, yeah. that's, that's, I will fight on your behalf to explain that to your boss that that's, you didn't do anything wrong. That's just the reality of the situation. And unless we look at it in real terms, you're never going to you know, improve your security. You're just going to continue down this vicious cycle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that, uh, you know, we touched on a little bit before is your early involvement with SANS and, you know, certainly SANS kind of hand off to CIS of the controls and things, but you've, you've also been teaching with them for a number of years. How did the, the, the kind of teaching aspect with SANS come about? Um, so, you know, it actually uh, probably a lot of um, people who are with SANS today at one point or another, you know, found a way to volunteer with them or we just sort of stumbled upon a website. And, and I, I remember sort of in the early days of, you know, sort of mentioned, you know, being a part of organizations, trying to learn as much as I could about security after sort of being thrust into that responsibility. I think like a lot of folks, there's sort of just a hunger for information. And at that point, you know, granted the internet wasn't that old and, you know, we were all trying to just learn whatever we could. And, you know, here there's this website of resources, you know, the SANS reading room and this place where you could kind of go and learn free articles and you know, read as much as you could you know, consume at that point. And so had actually gotten involved in uh, volunteering for a couple of conferences, um, ended up being a grader for their uh, certification programs, actually reading people's um, papers in the early days for the certification, you had to write a research paper first. And then once that research paper was approved, then you could actually go in and take an exam. And so I sort of volunteered, ended up, you know, reading a lot of people's papers, working with people to try to do, do more research, uh, which sort of led to, you know, in those days, I think we only had maybe five or six classes at SANS. Um, now, I don't even know, maybe 70, 100 classes, something like that. But um, just got involved, especially in the audit side. Uh, teaching people, you know, sort of techniques and, you know, technical ways to conduct some of these reviews. And uh, that led to us writing some audit courseware and then eventually some more courseware for the critical controls. And actually, we uh, have a risk class as well and a couple others there at SAN. So just sort of over the years, just sort of it's, it's this uh, Stephen Northcutt who invited me in in the very, very beginning, uh, who was the CEO at the time, uh, always said that SANS is a guild of authors and speakers. And so if you have interesting content and you like getting in front of people and talking about the things you're learning, this is the environment for you. And honestly, that really appealed to me. I, I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy meeting people. Uh, I have probably one of the best jobs in the world in the sense that I get to travel once a month or so to some part of the world and uh, meet people who are trying to solve some of the same challenges I am, bounce ideas around, and I get to learn from them, hopefully, as much as they get to learn from me. And so in those early days, it was really just about meeting people, you know, doing more research, putting that into a form and courseware, something that you could, you know, present repeatedly and uh, just a great opportunity to meet people and study along the way. And you just, you just kind of hit on a point that I've heard other SANS instructors bring up, uh, particularly David Cohen and, and Rob, Rob Lee from you know, the forensic side of the house, that they often learn quite a bit from folks in class. Um, so have there been those lessons that you've, you've kind of picked up on things on the road that, kind of opened your eyes to something you hadn't thought of before? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in, in fact, I bet rarely does a week go by 
Uh, I happened to be in Tyson's Corner just a couple of days ago um, teaching a class on the uh, on the critical controls. And uh, I had a student from a large retailer uh, just asking me some questions and um, talking a little bit with me about automation of, of some of these measures that I was just talking about, um, talking to me about some of the dashboards and the reporting taking place, uh, and actually gave me some great ideas for new dashboards to include uh, in some of the standard reporting that we would generally recommend to organizations just by sort of doing some dialogue back and forth. So, yeah, on, on a weekly basis, honestly. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's the great part too is it's not just students. Is the other opportunity we you get at Sands is you know whether it be you know in the classroom during the day or sitting around a lunch table with other Sands instructors or going to dinner with people. You know, just your day is just consumed with meeting people of like minds and having interesting conversations about what they're working on, and so you get to learn from each other. So it's it's, it's a good atmosphere that way. Yeah, I think it's funny when if uh, you kind of I think it's on LinkedIn or one of the one of the about pages for the podcast. I kind of referenced, you know, having drinks with people and, and talking about security problems. I think it was at Sandsfire where I said, God, you know, I, it, was, it was those after, after conference talks where you're just sitting around kind of BSing with people and hearing things. I was like, wow, th- this is the type of information you need to capture. And that was kind of the, the goal of the podcast was almost those, those after conference uh, cocktail discussions to kind of That's bring great. out some of that. Because, yeah, you, it's, it's getting out there and meeting people um, that you, you tend to learn a lot. And just, just talking to them is, is very rewarding. But I'm sure also people do come up to you for advice in class. And I said, I guess what would be some of the common advice questions that people present to you uh, about you know, either getting in for information security or changing their career path if they've been in IT. So, what, what's some of the, the advice that you find people most commonly coming up to you for? You know, it, it's it's. I think that's, that's that question that everybody gets. It's the you know, how do you? There's, there's always the how do you break into the space? Or I'm in role X and I'm thinking about changing over into this job. You know, what would you recommend? We, we, we get those kind of questions a lot, or you know, a lot of questions around certification or paths of study or those kind of things. And you know, it's a it's becoming a, a challenge too more and more because again, I, again, if I look back 20 years, and again, I kind of sort of feel more and more like I'm know, an old man in, in the room every time. But you know, when I I look back in the early days, and if you were going into cybersecurity, I remember cybersecurity was a, a specialty. It was it was a part of an IT that was really specialized at that time, and you didn't specialize further than that. You were you had to learn everything because that's just how it was. Now, granted, the scope of knowledge, the body of knowledge, was much much smaller back then. We we had no idea, you know what was ahead of us but nowadays you know every time i hear that i say okay great you want to be in cyber what does that mean do, do you want to you know work on the governance side do you like compliance do you like working with routers do you like looking at servers do you like responding to attacks i mean just there, there's so many areas you can get into and, and i always have to try to grill people you know what is it that you really want and i think the, the hard part for a lot of students is uh, there's a there's the ability to get started and get your feet wet. And in fact, I'm sort of, I should say too, I'm to the point now where um, my kids are getting a little bit older. In fact, my oldest daughter is turning 21, uh, or actually they just turned 21 recently, and is considering looking at cyber as a profession. And so even as I talk to my own kids about, you know, the possibility of going to a field like this, you have to explain, listen, it's not about being a generalist. You can't just learn a few skills and call it a day. Uh, if you if you don't love learning, if you don't love experimenting, and you know, I even think just to the original definitions of hacking, and you know, trying to see understand how things work and how to break them and how to figure out what they do. If you don't if you don't love that, I don't think this is the right field for somebody. I mean, certainly you can fill a slot on a you know on a project someplace, but 
to really engage the field. I feel like you've got to have that level of learning and want to be able to engage long term. It seems to be a common thread. You know, we're close to 40 episodes into the podcast, and I would say from the first one on to, on to discussion with you, it seems to be the um, the commonality is that you, you have a passion for whatever area you're going to fall in, whether it be pen testing, forensics, audit. Um, but you, you also have that have to have that willingness to constantly learn. Like you never know it all. <laughs> and you, you have yeah. to constantly self-check and, and put your ego, uh, leave it at the door almost every day. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, you, some of the, the names you mentioned, other instructors and things like that. Um, I can tell you those people specifically, we've, we've started book clubs together. We've, you know, you read books on areas that, you know, sort of stretch us sometimes, even as a group, because it just, it's something fun. It's something we enjoy. So I think that that's something you really do have to you know, keep in the front of your mind if it's a field you want to be a part of. Oh, that's interesting. So what, what are some of the books that you guys have read? Well, it's, I'm not sure we've been, um, we've been as consistent as we like. Um, the last one we did was um, Windows Internals. Uh, so the, the the book that David Solomon and some of them yeah. um, contributed on over the years. So is it like 900 the, the, pages? I mean, that's not a light one. <laughs> yeah, no, it really isn't. But it's, again, I know it's kind of on the geeky side, but yeah. no, that's the stuff we like. It's kind of interesting to read about some of those things behind the scenes. So Very cool. Um, so great. So one of the things that obviously, you know, we, we hear in the industry, there's there's all constant buzzwords that are out, you know, uh, threat intelligence, threat hunting, latest has certainly been AI and machine learning. And, and certainly when you look at, the CIS controls and I won't even say that, but a lot of other areas, you know, the level of maturity that an organization wants to have within their program strives towards automation. How much is machine learning, deep learning and AI going to be able to meaningfully contribute to getting organizations through that level of automation? You know, I, I've got hope. Um, you know, I, I look at science, I look at some of the things that we've been able to accomplish up to this point, and, and I think there's a real possibility that we can take advantage of those those disciplines to help our field. Uh, and I, I think we'd be I think we'd be silly and, and maybe just a little bit on a proud if we thought that they couldn't. You know, goodness gracious, if you know we can use AI to teach a car to drive on its own, why can't we use it to help us make better decisions in our field? And so I, but having said that though, I think where a lot of folks in our field have sort of pushed back against that is that it's not there today. And the, the trouble is, you know, it's interesting whether you mention um, threat intelligence or you mention AI machine learning, some of these, these, these issues, I think the, the core problem of why we're not using those more effectively is the same problem. And that's that we don't really know what we're trying to defend or have measures to eventually analyze. You know, let's take you know, just something along the lines of threat intelligence. Threat intelligence is awesome, but and if I give you, let's say, an indicator compromise, and so let's say a sticks or a taxi feed or something like that, that's great. But if I give you something specific, like let's say, for example, I give you a file hash and say, okay, here's a file hash of really nasty stuff that's probably in your company, and you really need to make sure it's not in your company. You know, I think probably what 95, 98% was making that up, but of organizations I talked to. Would, would really have to sit and think, well, how the heck am I going to look for that hash across all my systems? You know, they're not going to have Yara deployed already or they're not going to have, you know, some other toolkit, you know, in place. And so my, my concern is that if we haven't done sort of those basic eat your vegetables kind of controls, threat intelligence isn't as useful. Or again, if I give you, let's say, an IDS signature that you could look, look for, say, real attacks going on for command and control, but yet you don't have an IDS installed, you know, what's the point of me giving you a signature? 
and I think the same is true of machine learning and AI is, you know, when we get to the point where we have a solid defensive architecture in place, where we have, let's say, more detective oriented controls that can gather this intelligence, and then we can take that data, look at alerts or events of interest, that kind of thing, and use that and actually process it to look for trends. I think in the long run, there's a lot of possibilities there. But I think the challenge is we still have so many organizations who haven't deployed IDSs, who don't have you know, a Yara infrastructure, who haven't deployed SIMs or, or haven't done any aggregation of their logs. And you know, how do we do learning in an environment where that data hasn't been collected in the first place? So I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit still in that space. Gotcha. That, that does make sense. Yeah, if you don't have the data to learn from, it does make it a little bit of a challenge to do quote-unquote yeah. deep learning, certainly. Great. So where can people find you these days? Where are you online? Um, definitely audit scripts, uh, where we spend probably most of our time there contributing resources right now. Um, you can certainly find me on Twitter, IS Audit uh, is my handle over there. Um, honestly, I'll admit I've been a little busy uh, with some of the, the, the internal projects. Um, it's sort of actually looking, probably where you find me the most is actually sort of in the output of some of the work we're doing. Uh, we have a, a new version of the, the CIS controls like that we're hoping to put out. Come January, uh, we have a risk management framework that we've sort of finally been able to sort of gather our notes and, and release, and hopefully we'll have that out here, probably November, uh, December timeframe for just before the controls come out. Uh, and a new version of the open threat taxonomy is also going to be coming out uh, this year as well, uh, an update. So, you know, I think a lot of the, the places you find us are honestly sort of in, in those projects to try to give content to people. So I think that's still going to be our focus you're going to see uh, over the coming months. That's great. Yeah, and I'll be sure to link all that stuff in the show notes. And with that, the CIS security, with that, so will it be that version 7? Is that, are we up to version 7? I forgot where we are. We're at version 6, right? Yeah, so version 6.1 is the latest release, and we are probably shooting for version 7 for the January release. Gotcha. And I know one of the questions that came up uh, in the past of that was, is, is that a license to use control, control set, or is it that's only for the membership? So I, it changes a lot, and I know the sort of the underlying business model of the controls um, changes day to day. It's a volunteer organization, but at the same time, they, they actually have servers and things like that that they're trying to pay for and you know keep notes online and those kind of things. But um, I think what they're trying to do as much as possible is not require membership. Uh, in fact, you, it doesn't require membership to use the controls. Uh, in fact, uh, it's completely free for anybody who wants to use it. Um, there is a licensing model presently for people who want to make money off the controls. And basically, the center has said, listen, if you're trying to make cash off the controls, you know, please you know, contribute and be a part of this so that you can help it, the rest of the folks use what's there. So, But yeah, for anybody who wants to use it, completely free. That, that's the point of having them there for any organization who wants to uh, try to defend themselves better using those controls. Awesome. Like I said, I'll be sure to put that, uh, the links to that site and audit scripts and everything else you're doing in the show notes so people can find you online. No, that'd be awesome. Appreciate it. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate you uh, having the conversation. Well, honestly, good to spend some time with you today, and I appreciate you having me on the, on the podcast. Well, great. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.